Good evening. Am I on here? One, two. All right. Good evening. Uh, if I've not met you before, my name is Aaron. Uh, it's good. It's good, you know, in the midst of COVID these last uh, this last year. It's good to be together as churches. It's good to be together, but it's good to be back together, even as two churches uniting together for uh, for this service as we've done for. I don't know, four or five years now. It's something I always look forward to. I think it's a good, it's a good, uh, good thing for us to do. I think it's a good testimony to uh, to our community, and so I'm glad we are able to do this uh, once again. Uh, you know, when I was a kid growing up, uh, one of my favorite TV shows, and I think for our whole family, we would we would watch this TV show was the the sitcom starring Tim Allen called Home Improvement. Anybody else spend the 90s watching that show? Okay, good. That's, that's good. Um, I have a lot of favorite moments from, uh, from that TV series. Perhaps my, my favorite recurring bit that uh, would be when uh, Tim would give regular power tools or household items more power, right? More power. It, it, how it came in the box just wasn't good enough. And so if you've seen it, you remember how this would go. It could be, could be a screwdriver or a bicycle or a lawnmower or, or just an ordinary strand of Christmas lights, right? And, uh, uh, you know, a, a simple tweak here, uh, an adjustment there, and he'd present this new and improved version of the item complete with more power, okay? I mean, it's, the show was kind of based on that, I guess. But of course, those items only functioned as they were supposed to for about five seconds before they would self-destruct, and that was just the recurring bit. But regardless of the, the comedic you know, intention behind that, uh, that whole more power mantra, I think the phrase could describe the basic way that our world functions. Right? I mean, our world is one in which it is a foregone conclusion that more power is always better, Right? I mean, think about it. In the pickup truck, Hemi or non-Hemi engine? Hemi, right? More power, of course. Um, eight gigabytes of RAM in the computer or 16 gigabytes of RAM? And you don't even have to know what a gigabyte is, and you know that 16 is better, right? It's a bigger number. More power. Um, my political party possessing 45 seats in the Senate or 55 seats in the Senate? 55, right? We want more power. Um, an, an army of 100,000 soldiers or an army of a million soldiers, which is better? We would say a million, right? More power. It's just, it's kind of the way we've been trained. And I'm, and I'm not saying that any of those uh, statements are inherently wrong, but you can see why I think, especially here in America, we're so ingrained to believe that more power is always better. It's always better that way. It's the best way forward. And, and it, it's, honestly, it's not just us. It's not just Americans. Uh, this has been the common way of thinking in cultures, peoples throughout history. Um, and that would have included the Roman Empire, the ones that were in charge, the ones that were in control when, when Jesus walked this earth. You know, the vast reach and influence of the Romans in the known world at that time is, is directly attributable to the size and training and power of their army. It just was. At that time in history, there probably wasn't anything that possessed more power 
than the Roman army. Even the emperor himself, you could argue, did not possess the kind of power that the Roman army did. So it shouldn't come as any surprise that people living at that time, whether Roman citizens or not, they would have assumed that more power was better. They would have seen that. They would have seen it. More power provided the best path forward. And I think that, that way of thinking is exactly why Jesus' statements about his kingdom are so shocking and so difficult to grasp at the same time. And this is true not just for the ordinary people in the crowds who heard Jesus' teaching. Uh, It wasn't uh, just true for his disciples who followed him day in and day out. I think if we're truly honest with ourselves, it's, it's shocking and difficult for us to truly grasp as well. And, and this theme comes up uh, many places in the Bible, but there's kind of a concentration of it in five chapters in the book of Matthew. So I would encourage you, if you've got your Bibles, to turn with me or, or open the Bible app on your phone to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Now, now much of the first half of the book, the Gospel of Matthew, is uh, really is uh, Matthew giving evidence for the name which he gives to Jesus in the very first verse. So if you were to read Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it would say, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Matthew opens the whole letter by claiming that this Jesus is the Christ. It's not his last name. That was a title, Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah. And, you know, we're so used to hearing that name that we can perhaps gloss right over the incredible statement that Matthew is making simply by attributing that title to Jesus. And if he's going to call Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, then he better be able to back that up. And so Matthew begins, he goes through in his gospel and he shows that Jesus indeed is the Christ. He starts with the, uh, the lineage of Jesus that goes all the way back to Abraham. He, he then connects the birth of Jesus with prophecies given centuries before regarding the Messiah. Uh, he, he further connects John the Baptist's pronouncements about Jesus with other prophecies. Uh, He records the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus at his baptism. He records powerful teachings of Jesus, both in parable form and other times where Jesus is just directly interpreting the Old Testament. Uh, He records miracles. Jesus brought a girl back to life or or healed blind men or cast out demons or fed the 5,000 or walked on water. I mean, Matthew presents a truckload of evidence of why Jesus is the anointed one, is the Christ, the Messiah. He wants the readers of his gospel, functioning kind of like a jury, if you will, to to find that he has sufficiently made his case, that Jesus is indeed the Christ. And so in kind of his closing arguments, as we look at Matthew chapter 16, he asks us to consider the testimony of one of Jesus' own disciples, someone who saw firsthand much of what Matthew wrote about in his gospel. So look with me at Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. This is, and again, you know, Matthew, he's using 
the questions that Jesus asks his disciples to ask us those same questions. So Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Again, Jesus is asking his disciples, but Matthew is also asking us. They said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Peter answers in the affirmative, right? The, the, the very case that Matthew has been making from the very first verse of his gospel is, is validated by Peter in this, in this passage. Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Messiah, just as he claimed to be, just as Matthew presented him to be in his book. You know, at Eureka Bible Church, we've been going through uh, the book of Isaiah the last couple months. And, and just in the book of Isaiah, we're told that this long-awaited one, the Messiah, would be called Mighty God. We're told that the government would rest on his shoulders. Uh, we're told that there would be no end to his kingdom. We're told that the spirit of counsel and might would rest on him. Uh, he would strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. He would bring forth justice to the nations. Th this Messiah is, as they thought, Mr. More Power himself. I mean, how exciting it must have been when Jesus did not refute Peter. And Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. Man, Jesus didn't tell him no. How exciting that must have been, knowing the power that stood before them. But what we can't miss is there is a massive shift that takes place in Matthew's gospel from this point forward. And not just in Matthew's gospel, but, but there's a shift in Jesus' ministry, really. The way he talks and teaches from this point forward. From here on, the aim shifts from proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah to proclaiming what kind of Messiah he had come to be. And what was shocking to Jesus' disciples, and, and what I think is, is equally shocking to us today, is that Jesus takes that, that more power mantra that would have existed in the minds of, of many people regarding the Messiah, and he smashes it to pieces. And he, and he wastes no time doing it. I mean, listen, listen to his very next words in Matthew's gospel after that exchange with Peter. Verse 21 says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus is not the more power Messiah, as he relates it here. Now, does he possess power and authority? You bet he does. There's no question about that. But he is not the more power Messiah. And he reveals that very clearly 
And, and as equally important to grasp, his kingdom is not the kingdom of more power either. And for the next four chapters, Matthew records how Jesus went on to proclaim that truth again and again and again, one after another, in teachings, in examples. Uh, let, let, let's do a quick flyby and, and just kind of see if we can see this theme coming out. So, so at the end of chapter 16, uh, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus tells his disciples that if they're going to come after him, then they needed to deny themselves and take up their cross. They, they should lose their life for his sake. In chapter 17, uh, verse 12, Jesus told how he'd suffer at the hands of the religious leaders. Chapter 17, verse 22, Jesus gave his second pronouncement that he would be killed, and then on the third day, uh, raised to life. At the beginning of chapter 18, the disciples came to Jesus asking, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I mean, can, you, can you hear it in that question? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's got the most power, Jesus? Who's got the most power in this kingdom of yours? <laughs> How does Jesus answer? Verse 2, calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So more power? It seems like Jesus is saying, no, no, more humility. More humility. That, that, that is the hallmark of the Messiah himself and the hallmark of his kingdom as he presents it here. Continues on, chapter 18 uh, verse 10, Jesus talks about value in his kingdom. It's, it's not so much the, the 99 obedient, successful sheep, right? It's, it's the one lowly lost sheep which Jesus goes after and rejoices greatly over. Uh, chapter 18, verse 15, Jesus talks about power in terms of forgiveness. So his kingdom isn't one in which, in which the person who is wronged clings to power by refusing to forgive their debtor. Uh, his, his kingdom is not one in which the person who is wronged wields power over the debtor by, by forcing him to make restitution of some kind. No, Jesus' kingdom is one in which the person who is wronged lays down their power by forgiving the debtor and releasing them of their debt. And not only is that the hallmark of the kingdom, that's, that's the hallmark of the character of Jesus, which, will, which he will soon display on the cross. It continues on in chapter 19. Jesus went on to talk about divorce. In a, in a society in which men held all the power and, and could divorce a woman for any and every reason, while the woman had no recourse available to her, Jesus stated that only by sexual immorality could a certificate of divorce be given. I mean, he, he wrestled power away from the men in that instance. And, and the, disciples, the disciples are in such shock that they just concluded, well, it's better not to get married then. I mean, think about that. They just said, well, if I can't divorce my wife for any reason, I, I, I just shouldn't even get married. I mean, they're so accustomed to that power. They're so used to it. They can't even fathom what it's like without holding that power. 
chapter 19, verse 13, it continues on. Jesus again told that the kingdom of heaven belonged to those such as lowly children. Chapter 19, verse 16, a rich young man comes to Jesus. He's, he's uh, inquiring about entry into the kingdom of God. He was a man who not only possessed power through his wealth, but, but thought he possessed power through his actions as well. Jesus quotes the law to him, and he proudly stated that he had kept it fully. So what does Jesus tell him to do? In essence, give up your power. Go give away your wealth. Give away your possessions. Give it to those who, who had none. Lay down your power, rich young man. Chapter 20, verse 17, it continues. For a third time, Jesus foretells his, his upcoming death, his resurrection, and, and, and this time he throws in words like mocked, flogged, crucified. And Jesus made it abundantly clear through all of this that, that he was not the more power Messiah, and he did not reign over a more power kingdom. And so surely his disciples would have gotten that, right? I mean, surely his disciples who heard this teaching and who, who interacted in, in the midst of all this, surely they would have grasped this concept. But there's one more story that centers on this theme yet. And so we're going to kind of slow down a little bit here and, and read this story. It's Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. And so as I read this, kind of really allow it to sink in, in light of what we've just been talking about, how Jesus presents himself and his kingdom. So chapter 20, verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Can you hear it? I mean, can you hear it? I want my boys to have power. I want them to have power in your kingdom. And I'm sure it's not just her. I'm sure James and John were in on it too. They wanted power in Jesus' kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, We are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, the other ten disciples, they were indignant at the two brothers. So we can't just blame James and John. The other ten wanted the power too. They're upset that James and John asked first. Man, so you got twelve disciples here that still haven't gotten it, that still are looking for power in the kingdom of Christ. And so, we just have to picture this. Jesus says, all right, you know, let's, let, let's gather up. Let me, let me just lay it on you. Let, let me make it as plain as I could possibly make it. And so he goes on in verse 25. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, and just hear Romans, the Romans, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. And how clear does it get? It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life is a ransom for many. So even after all that the disciples had heard Jesus teach, all they had seen in him, they they still failed to grasp the kind of Messiah that Jesus was, the kind of kingdom over which he reigned. And and I, I don't think it was until the crucifixion itself that they finally got it. I mean, even in Gethsemane, what's Peter do when the guards show up? Pulls out his sword, right? Goes for his power, tries to, tries to defend himself, tries to fight back. But Jesus hadn't come in order to exercise his power forcibly on mankind. He hadn't come to force everyone to bow down and to worship him. He, he hadn't come to be waited on hand and foot by the lowly humans. Not at all. Jesus gave up his power and became human and came to earth in order to humbly serve, as you said there, and then ultimately humbly sacrifice his life upon the cross. That's a stark difference from the Roman culture of that day. It's a stark difference from what the Jews would have expected from their Messiah. Uh, and, and I think today, it's, it's, that's a stark difference for us, too. That, that's something that's not natural for us today in our culture, either. We're definitely not trained to function in that way. The, the kingdom of God is, is, is built and expanded by humble service. His kingdom comes not as we force it on our world, but, but as we lay down our lives for those in our world. That, that's how his kingdom comes. And I wish, I so wish I could tell you that the church throughout history has always gotten this right. I so wish I could tell you that. But just simply looking back through church history shows that, that the church forgets this quite often. I mean, the church in the 5th century and, and onward forgot this. Once Christianity became legalized within the Roman Empire and and later became the official religion, the church forgot this. Uh, you, can, you can look, uh, the church forgot it when uh, Muslim invaders took over lands. They responded by mounting crusades in retaliation. Uh, the church forgot this when corruption ran rampant through the, through the uh, Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. I mean, you can see it all throughout history. The church forgot the kind of Messiah that Jesus was, and the kind of kingdom over which he reigned. And I wish I could tell you that the church today was a whole lot better than the church back through history. Uh, But history proves otherwise. We can look around and see otherwise. I mean, the, the church today forgets this when pastors or writers or speakers or, or, or musicians gain popularity and wealth and influence and, and begin to think they are above the call to serve. Uh, the church today forgets this when it anchors itself to politics and tries to wrestle power towards itself through political means. Uh, the church forgets this when you and I begin to look out for ourselves and do that rather than serving and loving our neighbor. We still forget today the kind of Messiah that Jesus is, the kind of kingdom over which he rules. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And we're called to live by that example. 
That's the calling that Jesus gave to his disciples, and it's extended right on down through us, his people today. So we, uh, as we move our focus to communion that we're going to take together this evening, <clears throat> I think there are numerous reasons Jesus instituted communion as an ongoing practice for his people. I think one of the reasons is so that we would have a continual reminder of the nature of our Messiah, the nature of his kingdom. You know, the, the elements themselves are a reminder that Jesus gave his life upon the cross as a ransom for many. We shouldn't be able to look at the bread and the juice without thinking about that. But the communion meal is also set up in a way in which it, it really provides no room for any kind of power grab. Uh, receiving the bread and the juice, it, it, it's not predicated on, on income level or, or influence level or popularity level or education level or, or any other kind of power level that we might come up with. Participating in communion is a humble receiving of a humble sacrifice. It, it's the very nature of, of what communion is. Now, to be sure, it hasn't always been treated that way. Uh, if you look in uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul chewed out the church in Corinth for how they were treating communion. In, in that setting, there were people who were, who were gorging themselves, while there were others who were probably poorer, those with less power, who were going hungry. And, and Paul said, that, that's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. That, that's not communion. Say, so you can call a meal whatever you want, but that's not, that's not communion. And Paul even went so far as to say that, that taking communion in such a manner was to eat and drink judgment upon oneself. Instead, he said, each one should discern the body, give, give careful attention to the body as they partake of communion. And, and whether you interpret that statement to refer to Christ's physical body or, or the body of Christ, it really doesn't matter. Both should reflect humility. And both should reflect servanthood. Christ, he didn't come to earth to exercise power for his own gain. He, 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 his kingdom is not one where those who are great are those who are the ones who hold all of the power. His life, his kingdom, they're marked by humble service and sacrifice. So as, as the people of Christ's church, as, as people living here and now, according to God's kingdom, we're called to humbly serve. So, so anytime you or I find ourselves grasping for more power, we need to return our gaze to the cross. Because it's that reminder of who the Messiah is, what his kingdom is like. We need to remember that our Messiah came not to be served but to serve. And so may our, may our participation tonight in communion and, and every time from here onward be a reminder of that, that we are called to serve as well. So as we, as we prepare to, to humbly participate in this uh, act tonight, let, let, let's take a few moments to just examine ourselves. Um, ask God if there's... Is, is there any area in my life where I'm striving to gain power? Is there any area where I'm grasping after power? And if so, 
Let's ask God for the strength to live out that calling that he's placed upon us. Let's let the words of Jesus ring in our mind. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. So I encourage you to spend some time reflecting on that, meditating on that, and then after a time of reflection, Pastor Tim's going to come and he's going to lead us in communion together. I hope you had an opportunity to, to reflect um, on the words of the scriptures and just thinking about how we can be servants. Um, one of the things I just absolutely love about this time of year is the opportunity to reflect. And um, I also really love this service. This is one of my favorite services of the year as a pastor, as an opportunity to come together as our two churches and to worship together, to reflect together, but also to join together at, at the Lord's table, to come together, to celebrate, to memorialize, to, to think about, to reflect on what Jesus has done for us, dying on the cross. And it's, it's special that we have the opportunity. And I, I just hope that you have had some opportunity to reflect today and going forward on what Jesus has done for you, the sacrifice that he has made. I think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German author and pastor who talked a lot about how and when we think of the Old Testament, we think about the idea of blessing and suffering, and we, we separate those things. But there's so much of both of those things working together when you see the Old Testament. And then when you get to the New Testament, we can't have this Good Friday without there being Sunday coming with the resurrection, right? And so we understand that there's that connection that there has to be with the blessing, with the salvation that we have. There must be a Good Friday. There must be a Friday that we must have the cross. We must have the suffering. Hundreds of years before the cross, Isaiah talks about the idea of the suffering servant. And what I'd like you to do with the elders coming forward, they're going to, when they pass out the elements, I want you to reflect on these words that come from Isaiah chapter 53. Starting in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him, esteemed him not. Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet he esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So as we take the elements tonight, I want you to be reminded of what Jesus did for us. That he shed his blood, that he gave his life in order that we could be saved from our sins, that we could have eternal life. Something we don't deserve, something that we cannot earn, something that has been freely given to us by grace and mercy. And so as the elders come to bring and give the elements to you, I want you to really reflect on the idea of Jesus and what he has done for us. Take these elements as a believer in Jesus Christ as a way to memorialize and celebrate what uh, Jesus did for us on Good Friday.
on the night that Jesus was betrayed, one, night bef- one day before he would be put on the cross, he instituted his supper, the Lord's Supper, by saying these words in Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat this, this is my body. So let us partake together as brothers and sisters in Christ with the moralization of Jesus' body. Let's partake. In verse 27, Matthew 27, 26, 27 says, And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Let us partake as a reminder of Jesus' blood shed for us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I am thankful for the opportunity to gather as brothers and sisters tonight to gather around your table to celebrate and remember what it is that you've done for us. Lord, the only reason that we're able to call this Good Friday is because of what happens on Sunday, because of your resurrection, because you defeated death, because you came out of the grave, we have the opportunity to be saved from our sins. But Lord, we think of today of the, the punishment that you took, the iniquities of us that you have taken on yourself, and we thank you for that. We praise your name for doing what we do not deserve, giving us what we do not deserve. Lord, I pray that we will not leave today without thinking deeply and being thankful in a deep manner for what you have done for us. Help us to be reminded day after day going forward from this of the great sacrifice that you did for us. And I just pray that you will help us to take the example of you, Lord Jesus, as the suffering servant to lead us to be servants, humble ourselves to serve one another and put everybody else's interest above our own. Help us to be servants because you were the suffering servant for us. Thank you again for the opportunity to worship you tonight and gather together around your table. We pray this in your great and gracious name. Amen. As we close tonight's service, I want to read from Philippians chapter 2. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Consider others as more important than yourselves, and everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude that is, that is of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, do not consider it equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself to become obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. 
For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Let's close in prayer. Jesus, Jesus, thank you for taking the punishment that we deserve for our sins. Jesus, thank you on dying on our behalf. God, we do not deserve anything, but you have chosen to love us more deeply. You've chosen to love us more sacrificially than we can ever imagine. God, we, we go out from here tonight, and I, I pray that we would hold on to this joy of our salvation, that we would have this attitude of gratitude as we can boldly rejoice knowing that we are secured in our relationship with you because of the work of Christ that he did on the cross. God, we love you. We serve you. And in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you guys for coming to our um, service tonight. And I hope you have a great rest of your Easter weekend. You are dismissed.